Are you a real estate investor looking to elevate your income, freedom, and lifestyle? If so, optimize your daily performance by downloading our free guide, Raising the Bar, Five Steps to Elevate Your Habits at elevatepod.com. In this guide created by yours truly, you'll learn why you do what you do, how to easily institute cues in your environment to trigger desired behavior, directly applicable steps to create a fulfilling future, and much more. Get your free copy now at elevatepod.com and kickstart your new habits today. Your future self will thank you. Welcome to Elevate, the masterclass where we dissect the elements of exceptional achievement and lifestyle design with a focus on personal growth and real estate investing. Now, here's your host, Tyler Chesser. Elevate Nation, welcome back. This is Tyler Chesser. I'm so thankful to have you here and I'm blessed and grateful to be sitting with Luke Degrassi, an amazing individual. Today, you're going to learn about the case for manufactured housing communities an amazing approach uh, that he and his company have taken over the past three and a half years to grow to over 2,400 uh, units in their portfolio and rapidly growing. By the way, they acquired 12 communities last year. So if you want to get a clue on how you can implement strategies, tactics, and structure your company or your organization to encounter that type of growth or if you want to learn just more about how you can institute a positivity mindset so that you can create better outcomes in your investment portfolio, in your business, in your life, how you can really step up and create your future. Today's episode is amazing. And Elevate Podcast is all about mindset, mind expansion, and personal development for high-performing real estate investors. Today is no different. I'm your host, Tyler Chester, and I'm a professional real estate investor and high-performance coach. It is my job to decode the stories, habits, and multifaceted expertise of world-class investors and other experts to help you elevate your performance and lifestyle. Are you ready to take it to another level? It is time. Let's raise the bar today. And uh, I want to thank you so much for showing up and thank you so much for listening to Elevate Podcast. If it's your first time here, welcome. We're grateful for you. And if you've been here before, you know what I'm going to ask. The fee for listening today is to pay it forward and share this episode with one other person. All you have to do is go ahead and grab the link right now, send in a text message, send in an email, post it on social media or a DM on social media, whatever you have to do to pay that fee. We are so grateful for the opportunity to receive your introduction to someone else because that's the only way we can grow. And guess what? We've been growing really amazing. And I'm so thankful for everybody who is doing that, who's paying the fee. And uh, so I want to encourage you to do that again. If you've already done that in the past, thank you. We ask that you do that again. And I also want to ask that you give us a rating, review, and subscribe or follow Elevate Podcast and wherever it is that you listen or watch podcasts. Uh, we listen and we read every single review and are so thankful for your feedback. So with all that said, and without further ado, I want to introduce you to Luke Degrassi, who is the co-founder and principal of Pioneer Communities. As a chief acquisitions officer, he is responsible for monitoring, maintaining, and reviewing Pioneer's pipeline, as well as underwriting and modeling cash flows for potential acquisitions. Prior to co-founding Pioneer, Luke worked at HKS Capital Partners, New York City's premier commercial finance brokerage. As an associate in their capital markets group, Luke was responsible for structuring debt and equity capital markets across a variety of commercial transactions spanning permanent financing, ground-up construction, bridge, mezzanine, and acquisition financing. Prior to HKS, Luke worked at RPM Development, New Jersey's leading developer and operator of multifamily affordable housing assets. 
It's also really interesting. You'll find in this conversation, uh, the similarities that Luke and I had in different ways, but there's some commonalities that we enjoyed uh, in our backgrounds uh, to, to kind of get us to where we're at today in, in our real estate business and, and just in our life. So it's pretty interesting. Uh, but Luke also holds a BS in finance and international business from Villanova University and studied Spanish at La Universidad de Cadiz in Spain and mathematics at Columbia University. Luke is a member of the Charlotte Young Professionals Group, an advisory board member for the Villanova School of Business, where he mentors undergraduate students pursuing careers in real estate. And he is the chairman of the board of the Friends of Valence College Preparatory School, a charter school serving middle school children in Cordona, Queens, New York. He was born and raised in Italy. Luke enjoys practicing his Spanish, Italian, and French. In his free time, he likes to travel, read, play the piano, ski, and exercise. And currently, he resides in Charlotte, North Carolina. And that's where we uh, come to you today from. And so without further ado, please enjoy this awesome and enlightening conversation with Luke Degrassi. Luke Degrassi, my man, this has been a long time coming. Welcome to Elevate. How are you? Thank you, Tyler. I appreciate that. Uh, I am doing great. How are you doing? I'm doing awesome, man. Uh, like I said, it's been a long time coming. You and I have been connected for, I don't know, four years, five years or so. And it's funny because we've had many conversations in many regards, um, you know, through social media, through otherwise, you know, had calls with each other, explored doing business in different capacities. Um, but you know, it's fun to be able to culminate that, you know, today and, and have this conversation and share that with elevate nation, obviously talk about what you're doing now and what you've been up to. And I was just sharing with you before we started recording, it's been really fun to watch your journey and your evolution, especially over the past, you know, call it three years or so. So, man, I'm excited about this conversation. Um, but as we dive into this, one of the things that I love to do for the audience to help the audience connect to my guests is to ask you to describe yourself in the way that the people who know you best would describe you. Like, what would they say about you that maybe most people don't know, Luke? Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. And echoing all of that back to you. I mean, it's been great watching you through social media. I know we have a lot of mutual friends in the industry. Um, Evan Holiday, I know you've met Nick, I think, at maybe an SEC event. I think so, um, yeah. So Your just partner. A, it's a, yeah, it's just a, yeah, exactly. We'll, we'll probably talk about him, I'm sure. But it's a small community. And I, I love the ability to leverage, you know, platforms such as Instagram, which is where you and I connected and uh, connect with like-minded individuals. So to answer your question, um, how would most people closest to me describe me? Um, I, I would hope that the word accountable uh, would come up. I, 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 I believe in relationship. And so I believe in friendship. I believe in brotherhood. I believe in these things. And basically what that translates into day to day is accountability. So uh, if, if somebody calls, um, I do my best to answer that call and I do my best to be there for, for whoever this person is, if they're in my life. Um, a lot of my friends know that, you know, if I consider them a friend and they consider me a friend that I tend to be a, a very loyal person. And I apply a lot of those principles to business as well. Yeah. The other thing that really strikes me about you is that you're measured. And when you make a commitment, like you follow through, I mean, you mentioned accountability, but you, you strike me as an individual who, when you are in on something, you're all in, like it's all or nothing. And you make that long-term commitment, which I think 
and, and you could correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like that is such a phenomenal recipe, obviously, for substantial success in real estate, just since it's a, such a long term approach, such a long term business that lends itself super well. But am I am I on point here? Or am I missing the mark? Yeah, I, I think you're completely on point and we can go deeper into 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 that story. I mean, my story, um, the story of Pioneer Communities, because to your point, um, I think I think entrepreneurship is glamorized and romanticized a lot of times. And I think I, I mean, I, I'm guilty of it. I, I did that um, prior to going all in on Pioneer. I think I, I always had the entrepreneurial bug. I just wasn't quite sure where my energies were best placed. Uh, I've always been a builder. I've always been somebody who's passionate about creating things and just wasn't really sure where that energy was best placed. And so when when Nick and I crossed paths, um, and started talking about affordable housing assets and just sort of uh, a lot of, um, I guess, a lot of areas in the industry that we could have capitalized on as, as partners and with Pioneer Communities. Um, we, we really did go all in and uh, we were sort of just joking about this the other day. I'm currently Zooming you from our new office here in Charlotte, North Carolina, which is where we Beautiful. relocated to uh, about a year ago. Thank you from Manhattan. But um, you know, Nick and I started this company out of his kitchen, and we were literally commandeering the kitchen in the living room in his little three-bed um, apartment in Nomad in Manhattan. You know, we, we would meet there every morning. It was our office. And then if his roommates were around, we would go elsewhere. We would find a coffee shop. So, I mean, we really built this company um, in and out of coffee shops in people's living rooms and in kitchens. And so to, to be here, you know, three and a half years later... Uh, and actually have a platform here and and to have assets under management and to continue growing and expanding and exploring different verticals. I think it speaks to a lot of that grit that both him and I have been able to bring to the table on a, on a daily basis. I definitely want to get into that um, in terms of what that looks like. And, and I'm excited to hear that you guys are obviously expanding and, and, you know, your growth has been very impressive over the past three years, you know, starting from humble beginnings and, and you know, being sort of uh, gritty and almost scrappy is, is almost a prerequisite, especially in, you know, just being an entrepreneur. If you want to have success, it's like, let's just do whatever it takes. I don't care where we're doing it. You know, if the roommates are home, let's get out of here and let's get focused. Uh, so that's, that's really, really, um, you know, interesting and also something that I resonate with deeply. But before we talk about more about the the kind of the founding of Pioneer Communities and the thought process and the thesis now, talk to me a little bit about your upbringing, your backstory individually, because from what I understand, you grew up in Italy, correct? So sure, that, that's a really good question. I was born and raised in Italy and lived in Italy until the age of eight, uh, moved to the States. I moved to New Jersey when I was eight years old. My, my, my family, my dad, a lot of my family works in the fashion industry. Um, and we relocated to, to New Jersey in 1997. Um, so I think my upbringing was, uh, a, a good upbringing for sure. A lot of cultural diversity, a lot of traveling around, I think with the traveling around too, maybe came, um, just a lot of like uncertainty in, in terms of just decision-making choices, um, self-esteem, like just anxieties. You know, I, I came off the plane in 97 and and was this like, you know, awkward kid who had a British accent. I, I was raised bilingual. My mom's British. 
and was wearing like skinny clothes before skinny clothes were like a thing because <laughs> I was all European out. Uh, so, you know, just sort of like on the outside of, of the American culture. And just it was sort of a, a process for me just getting acclimated and, and feeling a part of. Um, so, I mean, that was childhood and then, you know, slowly got acclimated to the culture um, I went to college. I, I moved to Pennsylvania for school and then moved to New York post-grad, sort of post-grad, and then uh, eventually wound up in Charlotte. So how did that acclimation process, I mean, how does that still stick with you today? I'm just curious. I mean, obviously you were very formative at that time and you were kind of in this culture shock experience. You felt a little bit of self-esteem issues, but does that still stick with you today at any at any rate? I think, I mean, I, I'm a big believer that a lot of the childhood topics, upbringing topics, um, you know, these are things that are weaved in us and, and they just, they make up our being and our essence at such a deep rudimentary level that it's really tough, even with the amount of, of deep spiritual work that you can do um, in therapy, law life coach, whatever the avenue is that somebody chooses. Um, I've done both. It, it, like it, it takes time uh, because, you know, let's say that you start that deep work at 25, you know, that's 25 years of ingrained belief systems, although they might be false belief systems, they're still ingrained. And so it takes time, I think, to really outgrow those belief systems completely. Um, but I do believe that if anybody puts in the work towards change and changing those belief systems and having more fortitude, inner fortitude, uh, it's it's available. It, it takes time. And so to answer your question, um, I mean, I think anybody who answers that and says like, oh, yeah, no, I don't have any insecurity in my life at all is probably lying. So I'll, I'll do your listeners a service and try not to lie. Um, yeah, I, I certainly, I mean, I think for sure I, I have anxieties on any given day. What I will say though, is that I have tools in place today, um, that I like to use on a, on a daily basis. And I've, you know, been able to kind of move towards that inner fortitude, uh, compared to where I was when I was eight years old and, and newly, you know, fresh off the boat in, in the U S yeah, no, that, that super resonates with me as well, because I think about uh, an individual, his name is uh, Shirzad Shaman. He wrote a book called Positive Intelligence. And what he talks about in that book are the 10 universal saboteurs. And every single human being, you know, we live with saboteurs. Some are more pronounced than others. And it's not about getting rid of these saboteurs, but it's about, you know, quieting those. It's about reducing their impact on your life and the impact on your decision making. And it's about bringing the wise sage to the, you know, to the forefront so that you're making decisions based on inspiration, based on curiosity, uh, based on your goals, based on where you want to go, rather than based out of fear or, you know, this, this deep weaved sort of uh, feeling that we may not even be conscious of. And so once we bring that to the conscious, we can make decisions, you know, to a better degree instead of acting like a child would act. And so, you know, to me that that is, you know, ultimately the the most important part. And, and to your point, it's it's not this overnight process. And as we continue to get more and more familiar, we can start to make better decisions. So thank you for that. Thank you for that reminder for all of us, right? Because we all have this childhood experience, which may impact sort of the way that we behave or the way that we're interacting with others or ourselves. Uh, in a certain way. So talk to me, Luke, as you continue to progress, obviously growing up, you know, you mentioned going to Pennsylvania, I think you you went to Villanova, right for for college. I did. 
Got it. And so then from there, obviously you, um, you graduated. Tell me about where, where did you go after you, you graduated college? What did you start doing? And then when did you get into real estate? So my, my path to real estate uh, was not a linear one for sure. Post-college just wasn't 100% committed to, to one thing or another. Just kind of, um, I had mentioned that a lot of my family members worked in fashion. And so I was sort of going down that path and wasn't totally pumped about it. But, um, you know, I, I like, I, I'm big on just having experiences and, and trying things out and seeing what works. And even if it's by a process of omission, figuring out through experience, you know, what works, what doesn't. And so post-college, uh, a lot of my work was kind of geared towards fashion. My uh, cousin in New York had a company that was just getting off the ground and a uh, very successful business, but it was not for me um, working in the fashion industry. So uh, a couple of years later, I, I got into real estate. It was probably 2004, no, 2016, 2015. Um, started working at a multifamily developer owner operator in Northern New Jersey called RPM development. Um, they were primarily developers, owners, and operators of affordable housing assets. Um, not what I work in now, just more traditional multifamily buildings and sort of just got introduced to the affordable industry, real estate as a whole. Um, it was more of a kind of uh, back office finance accounting uh, operations type job. And it, it really was a great introduction to the industry. But I, I saw that it wasn't exactly the greatest use of my strengths. Um, and so from that role, I was sort of like tapped by, by a friend um, to join a different side of the industry, which was more focused on the debt and the equity. And it was a, a small little um, boutique commercial real estate financing brokerage in New York called HKS Capital Partners. And I think they have actually since rebranded. They're, they're now HKS Capital, uh, HKS Real Estate Advisors. I, I think that's correct. Um, they've gotten into the brokerage side of things as well, institutional sales. And so um, spent a couple of years on, on the brokerage side, just, you know, brokering debt, raising some equity um, again, right? Like this was almost like this was a step in the right direction where, where I'm more, I love people. I, I love interacting with people. And this was a step in that direction where I now had some clients I was working with. I was interfacing, um, I had a little bit more of an entrepreneurial, uh, type of flair to my day-to-day -day as well, being a broker. I'm, uh, you know, I was obviously sort of like on my own schedule, which going back to that entrepreneurial bug that I've kind of always had was, was a step in the right direction. Um, but I think what I realized being at HKS, which, which by the way, is an incredible company, um, and I have nothing but good things to say about them. I think what I learned there was that while I was going in the right direction, I was still sort of on the wrong side of the table um, for, for, again, for what's important to me. And what I mean by that is that I, I think I wanted to be in my client's shoes. I, I wanted to be the one who was maybe going to the brokerage, trying to refinance their building or get acquisition financing for a new one. And I, I wanted to be on the principal side. I wanted to be on the ownership side. And the reason for that was that I, I, genuinely and thoroughly enjoy having a handle on all things. So like when I was on the debt side, you know, 
we'd have people reach out. I would have a client who needed to refinance a building. And then we were kind of like lights out throughout the whole due diligence process. So I didn't, I didn't get a full view of everything that was going on. Um, it was just a piece of it, which was the financing, which is an extremely important piece. But um, I, I connected with my now business partner, Nick Hakim. He was working at a uh, private equity company, family office in New York. And him and I actually, funnily enough, we, we connected on Instagram uh, the same way you and I connected. And he was looking to acquire a building on a personal account. And he was just wondering if we could size up some debt. Him and I met, we ended up striking a friendship and would attend you know, real estate events together. Manhattan real estate is a, is a pretty small kind of space. Like everybody knows each other. You're all going to the same events. Um, there's all the same holiday parties that everybody attends. There's all the same large operators. And uh, we, we kind of, we struck a friendship and we would often go to these events and hang out. And then slowly the conversation there around, uh, I guess it must've been 2018, because I was going to Italy for uh, a wedding. <laughs> I was going to Italy for a wedding. I remember this conversation. Uh, I was talking to Nick and I was in the airport and he, he either texted or called. I don't remember the nature exactly, but he was basically just like, hey, I had left HKS like a month prior or two months prior. And he called me and he was like, dude, he's like, I, I think we should buy some real estate together. He's like, I, I, I think I want to get out of this like nine to five type thing, even though it wasn't really nine to five, it was a lot longer than that. But basically what he was saying was that he also wanted to kind of leave and, and do something together. And so I got on that plane. And then when I got back from Italy, um, which was October of 2018, we, we launched a company and we launched Pioneer Communities. I love it, man. Dude, the, the amount of similarities in your story and mine are unbelievable. So one, one thing is, and this is kind of silly, but I used to work for a company called RPM real estate, uh, RPM real estate brokerage firm. And so there, how interesting is that? So that's one similarity. The other similarity is I met my partner. Uh, we were both in the real estate, you know, institutional, well, he was institutional sales. I was more sort of middle markets, but, uh, you know, investment sales brokerage. And so we both met each other and sort of hit off, uh, you know, a thought process of, Hey, I want to be on the principal side, similar to you where it's like very, very similar. So that's so interesting how, uh, you know, sort of parallel in many regards that our, that our stories are. And it is also interesting that our networks are also connected. Um, you know, you mentioned the SEC earlier and, and of course I've had some in, involvement there, but I think that really illustrates how small this community could be. You mentioned in Manhattan, but also across the United States. And so the question is, you know, how open are you to the possibilities? And I love to hear that. So now let's talk about pioneer communities because you just brought us full circle, obviously 2018, you get back from Italy, you say, the first question is, Hey, let's buy some real estate together. Second, third, and fourth is, hey, what does that look like? So give us a sense of how you went from let's buy some real estate together to let's create pioneer communities and, and get clear on this whole vision. Yeah. Um, yeah, right. And and going back to this idea that uh, entrepreneurship can oftentimes be romanticized and glamorized. And again, I, I've been a victim of this Um I at one point owned the at real estate handle on Instagram and uh, co-owned with two other business partners. And we had this grand idea 
um, to essentially become this this voice in the real estate space. And and actually, there there was a lot of potential, I think, behind the idea. But I think we didn't we lacked the the vision, the clarity of vision. We lacked you know, the structure and what does that really look like other than the fact that we own a cool handle on Instagram. And when Nick and I sat down um, in October, we basically went after what we knew best, which was multifamily buildings in Manhattan. And so we spent the first probably two months, I would say, um, touring buildings, calling owners, uh, we started leaving Manhattan. We started leaving the boroughs. We would maybe go up to Kingston, New York, the Hudson Valley. Uh, we would look at stuff in Rhinebeck. We, we were kind of just looking all over the place. But again, traditional multifamily. And then um, you mentioned the SEC, which is an incredible group of um, real estate owners, operators, investors, um, which I'm not a member of, but Nick has been involved with for, for many years. And he had a mentor in the SEC who was kind of talking to him and basically put him on to manufactured housing communities. And he, he said, Hey, Nick, he said, I, I see what you're doing. You're starting this new company He's like, if I could do it all over again, and this was a, a gentleman in his you know 60s, 70s who had invested in a ton of different asset classes over the decades, said, I would only buy mobile home parks. That's it. And it's sort of like, you know, it kind of sparked this interest in an asset class, which is oftentimes overlooked. Um, and then it also brought me back to a time at HKS when I actually remembered that one of my colleagues was financing uh, a mobile home park and he was getting like some ridiculous leverage. It was like, you know, 85% leverage, like super aggressive rate, fixed terms. Um, and I remembered that. And then Nick looked back at another instance in his life where his dad, uh, who also works in the space as an owner and uh, does some 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 institutional sales up in the Hudson Valley. And he had a client um, who was selling a mobile home park and he had a whole bunch of offers come in, uh, you know, above ask, like 10 offers. And we both just kind of looked back on these separate instances in our lives where we're we didn't really know what a mobile home park was. Neither of us had ever set foot on one, um, but there was a favorable introduction in both of our lives at, at prior points. And basically our attention from that point onwards uh, was focused on mobile home parks. And we kind of sat down and that was really where Pioneer Communities was born was when we sat down in Nick's kitchen in Nomad, which is where we worked. And we just said, we're going to become the number one owner operator of manufactured housing communities in this country. And the reason for it is because we have that skill set. We It was a perfect blending of skill set. Nick grew up like where you and I were maybe playing with Legos. Um, Nick was probably like playing on his dad's skid steer <laughs> and, uh, you know, because his dad owns real estate in, in New York. And uh, he had the management and the operations skill set. I had more of the interfacing acquisition skill set. And we said, we're, we're going to do this. And so we, we and I want to preface too, um, a large part of our business is founded on the belief that there is a, a massive crisis in this country and it's an affordable housing crisis along with many other crises. But um, we felt very strongly that when we toured these mobile home parks, um, that we could basically do it better 
than a lot of the operators uh, whose mobile home parks we were touring. And there was a lack of reinvestment of capital into the asset. Uh, a lot of these parks were just kind of falling to pieces. And they were, for, for all intents and purposes, um, trailer parks, which is a term that we don't really use here because we, we really we're trying to create communities um, that residents are proud to call home and that they can rent or own at a, at a fraction of the market cost. And so when that idea was born, um, I mean, it was just full steam ahead. Now, what I do want your listeners to know, though, is that between that moment, which at that point must have been November, December, um, we would not acquire our first mobile home community until a year later. And so we we went 12 months, you know, full steam ahead. We knew what we wanted to do, but we were also met with a lot of rejection and a lot of failure. We were chasing deals in New York for the first six months. And this was before they passed the new rent control legislation, which we felt um, we had a lot of deals under contract when that legislation was put into effect. Uh, they were all in New York, though, and we just felt like it was too much risk Um you know, as as syndicators, we 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 are also stewards of mm-hmm. our investors' capital, and we didn't take that lightly. And and we sat down and we just kind of revisited some of these deals. We were just like, hey, I, I don't know if this is going to be like our best first deal. Um, there's a lot of risk here, and and we we just I don't know if this is like the right move. So we ended up walking um, from from a lot of units. <laughs> I mean. Uh, in retrospect, you know, thank God that we did, but um, we walked. And so we we actually, in month six, we restarted the pipeline from zero. We, we had focused for the first six months on New York almost exclusively, um, simply because it was right in our backyard. And so we could get in the car and we could just drive up to the Hudson Valley or whatever other markets we were looking. And we still hadn't really looked at the Southeast um, until month six. And and month six, everything changed for us. Um, We found a 173 unit mobile home community uh, in Savannah, Georgia. And we sourced that in-house. We we sourced pretty much all of our stuff in-house. And a couple months later, after negotiations, uh, we were under contract on our first deal. And then in month 12, uh, we closed on our first deal. Thank you for bringing up the fact that you had that 12 month gap because, you know, a lot of people think, well, you know, I get started and then, you know, three months later, I've got my first deal because, you know, I got to go out and beat the streets for 30 days. Then I've got 60 days of due diligence and then, you know, 90 days I'm profitable. Thank you for bringing that up, because especially in this market, no matter what asset class you're you know, looking at, you know, you're, you're going to have some resistance. You're going to have some rejection. Um, and I think that it's important for us to go back to that grit, like we were talking about, that resiliency and that willingness to do whatever it takes. But also um, you mentioned month six and month six, you pivoted. And it makes me think of uh, a book called The Startup J-Curve. And what happens is you start and you've got a you know opportunity to, to go up and then you get feedback from the marketplace. The marketplace says, hey, your approach is flawed. And so the question is, are you going to continue in that direction or are you, you know, are you going to continue in that direction and be knocked out of the marketplace or are you going to make a pivot? And so what happens is you make that pivot and you still had another six month gap before you became profitable or before you really started generating revenue for the company. But that curve says you went down and then you started to go up, right? I mean, does that resonate with you? 
Yeah, no, it a hundred percent does. And I think that uh, a lot of people, um, you know, when, when you hit that first lull and, and you're a little bit, you know, at the bottom of that curve, um, I think that the first instinct is maybe to quit or, you know, maybe to do something else. Yes. Thankfully I had already kind of done a few other things and I think I had been at that bottom of the curve in, in prior instances. And so it was just this, this, I mean, I had a laser focused as did Nick, like we both kind of fed off each other's energy and like failure just wasn't an option. And so even when the new legislation passed in New York, it wasn't like, oh, this failed. It was just like, no, like New York failed, but there's another 50 states that we can go hit. And so that put us onto the Southeast. And I mean, I live in Charlotte now. Uh, <laughs> I started this company in Manhattan. So uh, clearly feel very strongly about the Southeast. And, uh, you know, we own 20 mobile home communities today. Um, we've got about 2,444 units under management, and the majority of those communities are in the Southeast. Hey guys, just a quick word from our sponsor, then we'll be right back to the show. This episode of Elevate is brought to you by CF Capital, a national real estate investment firm founded by myself and my business partner, Brian Flaherty. CF Capital's mission is to provide property investment and asset management solutions to help investors like you maximize their returns by investing in high value multifamily communities. If you are looking for risk adjusted alternative investments in quality apartment communities, are seeking tax optimized cash flow with appreciation ups Side without all the hassles of management, you might benefit from learning more about investing alongside our team. You're invited to reach out and learn more about how you can invest with us by visiting cfcapllc.com. We're also currently offering a free ebook called The Bottom Line, 10 Ways to Increase Cash Flow in an Apartment Complex. Whether you're a new or experienced investor, we're confident you'll find massive value in this resource. So go get your free copy today at cfcapllc.com. And now please enjoy the rest of the show. Hey guys, my friend Damian Lupo just informed me that checkbook IRAs have been made illegal by the U.S. tax court. That means if you have a checkbook IRA, your holdings are now disqualified. That means taxes and penalties of up to 50% or more. Don't panic. Damien and the EQRP company can fix this. Lucky for you, those IRAs can be converted into EQRPs. Plus, you can do this retroactive to the last year, getting tax deductions and reducing your taxable income from last year. Want to invest your 401k or IRA in real estate, Bitcoin, gold, or even your own business? You can. Whether you're a full-time investor, retired, a dentist with dozens of employees, if you're listening, you qualify. The EQRP works and is your secret weapon. And now it's retroactive. They have your solution. By the way, if you got bad advice and use an IRA for an apartment syndication, you are sitting on a UBIT time bomb. But don't worry, there's a solution, the EQRP. The EQRP company is ready to help you get control of your money, kill UBIT, and help you pay way less taxes. Want to learn more about this strategy? Simply text the word ELEVATE to 307-213-3475 for Damien's brand new 2022 EQRP special report. Paying tax or letting Wall Street suck you dry is dumb. Your first step is freeing your retirement money by sending a text to 307-213-3475 with the word elevate. So two part next question would be, all right, so you talked about, you know, manufactured housing communities and sort of the thought process and obviously uh, a very wise mentor who said, hey, if I would have gone back, that's the asset class that I would have been focusing on. And you took that and you move forward in terms of, all right, well, this makes sense. Now let me dig into this. I would imagine you needed to 
convince yourself of the case for manufactured housing communities or mobile home parks, however you want to describe it. I almost think of the uh, the meme on Instagram as well, where you have Winnie the Pooh, who's, you know, he's digging out of the honeypot and he's like mobile home parks. But then in the other <laughs> sense, it's, he's, he's in the, uh, the tuxedo with the top hat and it's manufactured housing communities. And so I say that uh, tongue in cheek just a little bit. But give me the case for the asset class. And then let's talk a little bit about the thesis uh, that you guys have. I mean, you've obviously mentioned in terms of the region uh, and the focus there, but give us a little bit deeper sense of what you guys focus on. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, I think in terms of the thesis behind manufactured housing, um, I mean, again, going back to just the 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 large majority of manufactured housing is is non-institutionally owned so it's it's privately owned um the majority of the time those assets have been passed down generation to generation um sometimes it's just sort of a private owner um there there's a lack of capital reinvestment in a lot of the communities that we look to acquire and so what that translates into is potholes in the road it's vacant pads it's dilapidated homes. It's a lack of playground, even though it's an all-age family community. Uh, it's an office that fall, is falling to pieces. It's it's a lack of rules and regulations. And usually, what that type of environment breeds is everything that you know that Winnie the Pooh meme uh, would kind of imply, which, which is like you know it's a trailer park, like it's it's a place where you go to buy drugs. Uh, it's a place where you would expect to see you know gun holes or, or bullet bullet holes in, in the homes or whatever. And um, our thesis is to turn that around. And so what we do is typically, and not to say that we're exclusively value add buyers, we're, we're not. Um, but a lot of the communities that we have acquired, we have acquired value add. And so we're able to come in. We've got a pretty good feel now. I've I've lived on a mobile home park, as has Nick. Um, you know, we, we've essentially turned that first community in Savannah that we were referencing. Uh, we turned that thing around ourselves, and we we lived there on site. We lived and breathed every part of the capex plan, and oversaw it, managed it, um, and we're actually in the process of uh, disposing of that asset right now. We're we're, we're it's on it's under contract and and it'll be our first disposition um and we did some incredible work down there and so after acquiring that first community we we sort of realized that there was a massive need at a, at a national level um for the type of operations and management and, and capex that we were doing and so at a higher level like i would say that our thesis is to really improve the asset class as a whole uh, by going in and improving these communities to the best of our ability. When you think about projections, when you look at a deal, and obviously you're looking at some nuances in terms of the opportunity in the business plan, you know, the marketplace, what what sort of gap in that uh, demand you can satisfy, uh, what problems you can fix. And, you know, we can talk about those nuances. But when you think of, you know, obviously you're, you're sort of the head of acquisitions for your company. What type of deal jumps off the page for you? I mean, what 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 projections are you looking to accomplish? Obviously, the the bigger the better, but just give me a sense of what what uh, needle you're trying to thread in terms of uh, return on investment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think the majority of the deals that we're acquiring right now, uh, when we underwrite them, we're we're typically looking to pencil 
in the you know mid to low teens cash on cash return uh and then you know 20 plus irr um i will say i i think a lot of those projections tend to be relatively conservative um we we've definitely seen our investments perform uh, much better than that i would say um i would also say that right now um a lot of the metrics that we're using we're slowly kind of looking at uh i mean when we when we acquire these we're, we're you know we're, we're modeling these on a six to seven year hold but uh, realistically, uh, we're probably going to hold these for, for a very long time, which is why we, we do try to enter markets where there's a significant amount of growth. So, um, you know, for instance, like we acquired a community in Huntsville, Alabama. Uh, it's 173 units, 175 units. We acquired that in 2020. And, you know, Huntsville has now become the fastest growing MSA in all of Alabama. Um, so that we get calls on that community all the time, but we're not sellers, you know? So we, we look to enter markets where yes, we might be underwriting to certain returns, but there are also markets that have a strong, strong potential for very long-term growth. So we want to see single family home prices at a certain number. Um, we want to see positive population growth. We want to see the Lenars of the world, putting up new stick built homes, um, we want to see universities nearby. We want to see job growth, retail corridors, all of that good stuff. And typically, like I said, when we enter a market, uh, we, we do so because we believe in the market and we believe in the long-term growth of that market. Give me a sense of what the typical structure looks like from an equity perspective and debt. I'm just curious how you're financing the deals. Um, and then also, what does that look like from an LP perspective? Mm -hmm. um, so typically... We're usually um, offering our LPs an 8% preferred return um, and a 70-30 above the eight. And the way that we raise capital and structure the deal, um, usually we'll put in about 10 to 20% of the equity ourselves. And then we will raise the remainder of the equity through an LP vehicle. So we do have uh, a number of really incredible repeat investors at this point. And, um, you know, we're, we're really grateful for all of our LPs because especially on that first deal that we did, um, it, it was, <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's very difficult to find a good deal, but I would say that it's much more difficult to raise capital on that deal when it's your first deal, because everybody's kind of asking you, uh, okay, I mean, the numbers make sense, but like, when have you done this previously? <laughs> right. Like, right? Like, why why am I doing it with you and not somebody else? Um, so you know, we're extremely grateful for anybody who invested with us over the years and continues to invest with us, and especially on that first deal. Um, and it worked out and will work out when we close extremely well for for all of them. But um, we're we're very grateful for the LPs that we have. And um on the debt side. We uh, we've we've done a bunch of different deals on the debt side. The first deal we acquired uh, had some seller financing on it. Uh, it was a bit of a hairier deal. It had a large number of park-owned homes. Um, wasn't really. I mean, it probably would have been financeable, but we felt that the seller actually was motivated to hold a note 
And so we structured some pretty aggressive terms that worked out for us and for him too. Um, and then we've also worked with uh, agency lenders. So we've worked with Fannie Mae, we've worked with Freddie Mac on a couple of deals. They can get pretty aggressive on manufactured housing communities. Um, so, I mean, I know we bought a deal with them two years ago. We had, uh, it was a lower levered deal, but we had um, like a 3.14% fixed rate for 12 years, five years of IO. Um, it, it starts to get pretty compelling and it really moves the needle on our returns too. And given that it's fixed, uh, especially, you know, now with interest rates kind of raised, rising a little bit, um, we're, we're really happy that we took that debt. And then sometimes we'll work with other lenders too, because, you know, Fannie and Freddie are great, but they do have a very specific criteria for the parks that they lend on. They typically want to see, uh, you know, only a select number of park owned homes, um, they want to see a majority tenant owned homes. We can get into that. Um, they, they need certain, they have to, the parks need to be at a certain level of quality in order for them to lend on them. So we, we've worked with a few other lenders as well, but sometimes our kind of five, six year strategy would be to maybe put some other type of debt on it, on the acquisition. And then in year three year four, once it's stabilized, uh, go back to agency financing options such as Fannie or Freddie and have them refinance in year three, year four, year five, once the asset's been stabilized. So you guys working with a brokerage, a debt brokerage house to, you know, source many different options in terms of bridge, in terms of agency and so forth? Uh, not really. I mean, we, we've kind of reached out to a couple lenders. Um, we've got a guy that we work with on all of our agency stuff. But um, for other other deals, we've kind of just approached the banks directly. A lot of them, like I said, have a have a pretty, especially now. I mean, the secret's out. Um, a lot of them do have a pretty strong appetite for manufactured housing. I guess that uh, lends itself really well from your background to be able to kind of uh, facilitate, um, you know, those type of relationships directly. Yeah, yeah, no, and I, you know, I would actually give credit to uh, Scott, who who is kind of our third partner here. Um, Scott owns uh, a company in uh, Buckhead, Atlanta, Georgia called Gibson Avenue Capital. And we crossed paths on our first acquisition in Savannah. We struck a JV and it was just, you know, a single standing individual JV. And we worked so well together um, that we ended up acquiring our second deal together. And then we ultimately decided to strike an exclusive JV because we just worked so well together. And Scott, you know, has has a lot more, uh, several years more experience uh, than Nick and I, and his capital relationships, especially in the debt markets, have have been, you know, just tremendous. Um, he had a lot of those relationships in place, and so that's kind of something he brings to Pioneer, though, is just a lot of those capital relationships. Um, you know, Nick and I, when we acquired our first deal, didn't have the balance sheet to go get agency financing. And it was really, you know, it was hurting our returns when we were looking at these deals. Um, and so meeting somebody and connecting with somebody like Scott, who's very like-minded and believes in the asset class, but was maybe, you know, several years ahead of Nick and I and had those relationships in place was a major key um, to the way that we've been able to grow over the last couple of years. 
Yeah, I'm such a big fan of partnerships, especially like that. I mean, there's is a win-win situation. I mean, obviously, you guys were so hungry to grow. Obviously, he had some things that you guys needed. I love to hear that. But one of the things that people talk about so much, especially in today's market, is, man, I just can't find deals. Uh, I got capital. I got demand. Um, you know, obviously, we're, we're chasing yield. There's so much capital, so much liquidity chasing yield. But talk to me about, you know, one of your main focuses in terms of acquisitions and managing acquisitions, whether it's deal sourcing, whether it's, uh, you know, facilitating and growing relationships uh, that are necessary that can give you leverage, managing your pipeline, uh, managing the underwriting, and then managing due diligence and takeover. Give us a sense of what that whole process looks like for you and looks like for Pioneer Communities. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd love to dive into that. So when Nick and I first started the company, I think one thing we did, I mean, again, right, it's all just having experiences and realizing what works and what doesn't. So I don't want to say it was something we did wrong, but it didn't bring us to our highest level of success. Um, We were just kind of all wearing the same hat. and, And we were both like, you know, he was helping me source, I was helping him source. And then when we bought our first deal, like I had my hand in the management, the operations, and then Scott was also involved in the asset management. And then we were still trying to source new stuff. And it was it was just chaotic. Uh, we, we were just not focusing on what we were good at. We were just all trying to manage everything at the same time and do the same thing. And we were just kind of stepping on each other's toes. And it didn't work. It, it was not effective. And so what we learned in you know month probably 15, I would say, uh, was that we had skill sets and we should focus on what we were good at. And so I, I've always enjoyed the acquisitions process. Uh, I, I love putting in the time and going and building relationships with owners. I love hearing about their stories, uh, how they built the park, if they built it, how they you know inherited it, if they inherited it or if they bought it. Um, and I, I kind of developed a just, I don't know, like I, I developed a really uh, an interest, I guess, in, in, heading that up. And so last year, I would say was probably the first year where we really started wearing those hats exclusively. And when I took over acquisitions, um, you know, at that point, like we had our databases, we, we had kind of made contact, initial contact with a lot of owners who we had interest in transacting with. And I think at that point, like it was more so a follow-up issue where instead of, and especially to your point, right? Like everybody's chasing yield and, you know, manufactured housing along with many other asset classes is one of, of high interest right now, a lot of new institutional capital pouring into the space. How do you, how do you set up, how do you set yourself apart um, from all of these other principals, operators, brokers? And what I've found um, is that FaceTime goes a long way. And so you know, last year I, I carved out a lot of trips. Um, we bought a car in month 15 and that car had about 20,000 miles on it. And we've had the car for a little over a year. It, it now has about 85,000 miles on it. Wow. And we've driven that thing from one park to another, to another. And so we, we acquired 12 mobile home communities last year. Um, we sourced 11 of those deals in house. And we bought one 77 unit community outside of where we live here in Charlotte. 
through a broker, but it was kind of like one of those off market deals, which isn't really off market, but it was off market. Um, <laughs> but we had actually, uh, we, we had hit that park. We, we had sent them a mailer. We were in contact with them. We just did nothing transpired. Um, but the point being, we, we've done a very good job here. And the reason why I'm able to do what I do on acquisitions is because I trust Nick to do an incredible job with management and operations. And I trust Scott to oversee a lot of the asset management. And then when we do get a deal and we're shopping for debt and raising capital, like he, he kind of steps in. So trust is, is a massive component, I think. And it really carries over into all three of these areas that we've kind of mastered and, and they've become our verticals. Um, where I, I oversee a lot of the acquisitions and, you know, my two other business partners kind of have their own roles and we trust one another to effectuate results. Um, did that answer your question? Do you want it, me to go? No, it did yeah. really well. Actually, I, I found that one of the biggest nuggets is like, do whatever it takes. It's like, don't just sit back and wait for the deals to find you. you go out and find the deals. You bought a car and you drove it 65,000 miles over the past, what, 15 months. And it's from one park to the next to the next. It's building relationships. It's shaking hands. It's, hey, are, if you're interested, let me know. It's mailers as well. What else would you point to? Yeah, we, we've done mailers. Um, you know, I, I don't know what our success rate is on, on these massive mailer campaigns where you reach out to one of these services and they just kind of, you know, drum up a, a, a mailer and then plug in all of the values and then blast it out to like a thousand people. Um, what I have found to be effective on the mailing side is just identifying parks that are of, of very high interest that you're like, Hey, this really, you know, this fits this, this is exactly what we want. Like we can spread our vision here. Um, this is a good market. It's a good platform for us to offer affordable housing in this market. The infrastructure feels good. The pad count is good. The utilities feel good. Let's, let's get all over this. Um, you know, when you've got a couple of those, I think that it, it, definitely is worth the time to just, you know, draft something up yourself, personalized, um, and, and get it out. And listen, a lot of times, um, there will be no reply. And so I, I personally, I mean, you mentioned scrappy earlier on and Scott always jokes that Nick and I are, are these scrappy kids from New York who, who are just hustlers. And, um, you know, we, we, we kind of are, and like one thing that we'll do sometimes, which, I don't highly recommend, but it, it, it's a hit or miss. Um, you know, we'll just kind of show up at, at people's places of work. If, if they are managing the community, we'll show up and, and say hello. Sometimes they're not very happy about that. Other times it leads to a very good conversation. Um, but I think anything that will lead to FaceTime is we've never done a deal. The only deal that we did, and it was a very particular situation. We had just bought 160 units or were under contract to buy 160 units. And literally, you know, five minutes down the road, the seller's sister owned like 202 units. And she had just inherited that park like six months ago. She wanted nothing to do with it. And he just made, basically made the intro. I, I never met that seller. Um, we, we spoke on the phone, we closed on the deal, but I never met her face to face. That is the only deal that we've transacted on where we didn't get it done by putting in the FaceTime. Every other community that we've acquired, everything we've transacted on, it, there was a handshake that preceded closing. And, and usually after closing, there was a dinner or something 
um, to kind of commemorate that as well. This is one of my biggest takeaways from the conversation so far. I mean, FaceTime goes a long way. And to your point, man, it's this is a relationship business. Um, I've seen that myself in sort of my own history is that when I have a true relationship through FaceTime that's begun through FaceTime, it just is a big game changer. I mean, the, the trust, the rapport, it's like, you know what? We're human beings. I see what you're trying to do. Here's what I'm trying to do. Let's sort of solve this problem together. There's just so much value in that. So you mentioned um, just the way that the the marketplace is kind of shifting. Um, one of the things I see this morning, I'm reading an article about Sam Zell's equity lifestyle properties, betting big in the space, uh, you know, just recently making a hundred, nearly $150 million acquisition uh, the manufactured housing community space. Also, you're seeing Blackstone, you're seeing Brookfield uh, making big moves. Other institutional players make big moves. I'm seeing the over the past uh, second half of 2021, was it 22% of the acquisitions were made by some of the biggest institutional players. What, what do you make of this shift and how does this impact pioneer communities? Does it impact you guys at all? Does it shift the way that you look at things? Does it shift the way that you make acquisitions? Give, give me a sense of that. Yeah, I mean, the institutional presence is is nothing new, um, especially the the big dogs that you just mentioned. I mean, they, they've been in here for a while. I think there are some newer players coming into the space um, and ev everybody's chasing yield right now. And it has certainly in the last 12 months, I think, become evidently apparent that uh, there's there's a shift happening in the industry. And um is it affecting us it's become a lot more competitive i think but um it's really just a question it's a numbers game so maybe instead of like making 10 phone calls you have to make 50 phone calls um so it doesn't you know yeah sure i mean i guess i guess that does affect us to a certain extent but we're also like I'm not really concerned about that because we're 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 going to acquire probably 15 communities this year, um, and you know it, it doesn't really matter who else comes into the space. That's just we we have we also have a foundation in place that we've kind of been nurturing and creating over the last three years, um, and I, I think that a lot of these companies, especially the ones you just named. Who, who, by the way, like those guys are incredible at what they do. I've toured a lot of their communities and, and they're just, you know, it's something we aspire to. Um, but they also have a very particular criteria. So some of the more value add opportunistic type deals that we look at are, are not a fit for the Sam Zells or the Horizons or the UMHs or the Apollos or the Carlisles of the world. Um, those types of players are looking for a very turnkey institutional type package. Uh, they're not really looking to go in and fill pads. They're they're wanting to acquire something that is already turned key and stabilized. And so I think that's somewhere where we kind of set ourselves apart. And we've done that since day one. I mean, we look at anything and everything. And if you have any brokers listening, I mean, I would encourage them um, to reach out because we certainly do uh, look at all types of deals and all types of markets. And we're not scared of park-owned homes. A lot of owners are. We've kind of mastered um, the park-owned home model. Um, we're not scared of you know utilities. We, we've acquired parks with wastewater treatment plants. Um, we'll pretty much look at anything and everything as long as it checks that market box. And so if there's some size and there's some hair, but it's in a really good market, um, we'll do that deal all day. And Man, to answer your question, a lot of people won't do that deal all day. That's fair. 
No, that that makes a lot of sense. And and just understanding how the different players impact certain parts of the market and where do you fit in that market or where do you fit in the overall scheme of the market uh, makes a lot of sense. It's helpful to understand how you think of that. When I shift a little bit of gears for this conversation, when I think about mindset, you know, for me, I know it's been critically important for for me to continue to move forward. I know it's been important for many of the listeners uh, as they continue to propel their life, uh, you know, their their cash flow, you know, just the design of their life forward. How does mindset play into your journey? Um, I mean, I I think. I keep it in the day. I, I, my mindset is, you know, I, I view my mindset's a byproduct of the things that I do on a daily basis. And so I don't believe in a carryover from the day prior. Um, you know, yesterday was a good day for me. It was a successful day Ended it on a great note. I hit my pillow. I go to sleep. I wake up everything I did yesterday. doesn't mean anything today. And so I wake up today and I got to do everything I did yesterday all over again. That means I'm up at usually like 4 45 a.m i pray i meditate i read i write i'm at the gym by 6 15 i'm out by 7 15 i'm here in the office by eight and then like the day is is you know it, it flows so yeah i get into that mindset but i think the mindset is is a byproduct in and of itself of actions disciplined actions um, that i choose to take on a daily basis and I think that's also something that's wildly applicable um, to entrepreneurship, to starting your own business, having that discipline and starting your day on a positive note. So, you know, I would say that that in a word, the mindset is is positivity. It's just even in those first 12 months, right, when everything's falling apart, like we had fun. You know, we, we had a fun time even in that low of that 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 loop when we were at that bottom part, like it was still fun. You know, we were still laughing. We were remembering to have fun. Um, and so just keeping that positivity alive on a daily basis, I, I think is a really good starting point. Yeah. I think you have to be an optimist to be able to succeed in this business. And even just as an entrepreneur in general, cause it's not easy. And like you said, I mean, it can be glamorized. People can say, you know, it's the most beautiful thing to be doing, but you know, there are, there's, there's no question that there's times where you want to quit. There's no questions that you're, there's times where you doubt yourself, where you feel fear. It was like, well, what if, you know, we don't do the right thing or what if we do fail? And, uh, what if I get embarrassed? You know, that's the other thing too. It's like, you know, I'm telling everyone about my vision and what happens if I fall flat on my face? And so the, the <laughs> optimism, the positivity is critical. Is there anything that you would add to that? Yeah, I think, I think the optimism, the positivity, I think being surrounded with people, um, who also bring that positivity and that energy to the table and having trust in, in those relationships too. Like I, I was talking about that earlier, but then on like a personal note, I mean, just having a, a practice, like for me, it's in the morning, my mornings are just, you know, that's my time to get connected. And I attribute any success I have during the day to my morning. Like if I don't have my morning time, like my day is, I don't want to say ruined, but like much less likely to go in a positive trajectory than if I do have my two hours in the morning, hour and a half in the morning, whatever it is, um, where I just get centered, I, I get connected. And what's great is like, I don't have to reinvent the wheel, Tyler. It's like, I can go read a plethora of books, which I do, I, I love to read. Um, and there's a lot of people who have already kind of attained success, whatever, who've written books. 
And like, they put it all out there. It's free. Like, I don't have to make <laughs> it up. I don't have to invent it. I don't have to, like, it's already there. Like I can go study the habits of Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos or Warren Buffett or whoever the heck else is like inspiring me. And I can go read about it and then I can just replicate it. And the majority of these people have some sort of something early in the morning. That's just what works for me. Some people are night owls. They're more creative at night, like more power to them. For me, it's early in the morning. I'm up early in the morning. I create that positive energy and I bring it into the day. Yeah. Thank you for that. And by the way, that's a great point as well, because people always, you know, we'll talk about on a podcast say, well, my morning routine is this, this, and this. Well, you may be a night owl. And in fact, you know, there are certain people who are night owls, according to uh, what's his name, Matthew Walker, uh, who wrote why we sleep. In fact, that is real science. There's a certain part of the segment of the population that are more night owls. So if you're a night owl, mm -hmm. you know, apply it in that capacity. But I love that man mindset is a byproduct of disciplined actions. And uh, you just shared a ton of nuggets of wisdom there. So uh, I want to transition Luke into the rapid fire section of the podcast called the rare air questionnaire. You were just talking about books. So I've got to I got to ask you, man, two or three of the most impactful books you've read over the past few years. What would those be and why? Uh, sad. So I mean, the most impactful book I've read, um, I've read a lot of books, Tyler, but one that sticks out, which I think was more a function of when I read the book, um, which was kind of right after that 12 month period uh, that we experienced a lot of those challenges. And the book is by Angela Duckworth and it's called Grit. And I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with it, but I, I've read that book twice. It's, um, it's just an incredible way to frame, like it, she does an incredible job in my opinion of like presenting the facts. Uh, and she's also a PhD. So she presents a lot of psychology and a lot of studies and what she speaks to is essentially um, shifting your perspective from one of like, how do I serve myself to one of like, how do I serve others? And, and that's really where I think you're able to tap into this higher level of energy and positivity. And you just kind of see it flow. Um, there's more to the book. I, I would encourage people to read it. But right now, um, the way I read books is I typically buy like five or six and I just rotate. So right now I'm reading, uh, I'm reading the one thing by Gary Keller. I'm about halfway through that one. It's, it's an incredible book. Uh, I'm also reading atomic habits by James clear, which I'm about five pages from being done with. And it, it's, that's an incredible book too. Uh, and then I'm reading the greatest salesman in the world by Ogmandino uh, I would caution people on that one because although it is a small book, it is structured in a way where it actually takes you 10 months to read it. So <laughs> I started it about four months ago and I'm like reading these scrolls and going back to discipline. You have to read, there's 10 scrolls. You read each scroll for 30 days, three times a day. And so um, got the book right here. I read it three <laughs> times a day. Very cool though. Very, very interesting book. And That's a lot of unique. people speak very highly of it. No, that's awesome. I haven't read that yet. Uh, yeah. Heard a lot of people talk about that. That's an interesting approach, but we'll put links in the show notes as to where the listeners can find those books. So thank you for sharing that. Luke, what's Absolutely. the biggest, the biggest way that you elevate your life on a daily basis? If you had to pick one. Um, if I had to pick one, I mean, listen, man, I'm, I'm a pretty spiritual cat. Um, so, you know, we're here talking about real estate and, and tangible things, but the, the biggest thing in my life is, is 
I don't even know what to call it, but we'll call it a higher power for lack of a better word. I'm, I'm not a religious person by any means, but um, I, I believe in something bigger than me. I, I don't think I have the wherewithal to define that, but there's something bigger than me. And I elevate my life on a daily basis by, by connecting to whatever that is. And that is single-handedly the most important thing in my life for sure. And it's how I do elevate myself on a daily basis. It's how I get my day started. It's, it's how I've built this business. It's how I have the energy to do anything that I do is, is that. That's an awesome clue because um, what you're doing requires tremendous energy. And uh, I would imagine it's not just generated from your own grit, your own grittiness, your own resolve, but maybe something bigger. So thank you for that. Uh, what's the biggest way that you elevate yeah. others around you? Um, biggest way that I elevate others around me. Uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm a big believer in vulnerability, which I think oftentimes, um, we, we kind of gravitate away from, I know a lot of times we want to put on a facade. We, we want to, you know, tell the world that we're doing great and we want to throw the filter on the social media post and we want to, you know, tag, whatever, like, I'm a big believer in just emotional connection. I'm a big believer in vulnerability. I'm a big believer in sharing struggles. Um, I've certainly had many struggles over the years. We, we haven't really touched on any of them, which is great because we're almost out of time. So I don't have to go there. <laughs> Maybe we'll do a follow-up. But um, no, like I, I, that's that's something that I try to like, we were talking about friendship and brotherhood earlier in the show. That's something that like, that's something that I both bring to people in my life, meaning that I, I, I want to bring vulnerability into the conversation. Um, I don't want to wear a mask when I'm talking to friends. And then the other thing too, is I want to be a receiver of that vulnerability. And so if, if somebody it's what that looks like, really is like, if somebody's having a rough day, like I want people to know that it's okay. I'm a safe person to come talk to, you know, my friend group, my, my people who I surround myself with, like you, you could, and come to me and talk to me about what's going on. Um, and so that's something I try to do to, to elevate, you know, others around me is to just kind of create that, that dialogue where we don't need to bring ego and um, facades and masks into the conversation. We, we can talk like emotional beings about whatever it is that's going on. Man. Yeah. Luke, I, I know that there was tons, tons of stuff that we could have covered today. We could have dove into, we could have uh, gotten even more vulnerable on, you know, because you're, you're a dynamic individual, man. You're, you're not just one dimensional and, and no one listening to this conversation is by the way, we all are multidimensional. And uh, I just want to acknowledge you, Luke, because uh, you guys are doing amazing things, obviously, with your business, you're inspiring many people, uh, you're making a difference in the community. And, you know, getting out there and beating the streets and showing people how it's done. Uh, I think a lot of times people get this sense of, you know, uh, there's all these tools and there's this, uh, you know, technology that can bring things to me. But I think what you're showing is that, you know what, it's it's tried and true. It's the old fashioned. It's roll your sleeves up. It's get it done. But it's also not lose, you know, who you are in the midst of it. Um, it's still connect to what's most important. So I just wanted to acknowledge you, Luke. I just really appreciate you. Appreciated this conversation so much. Is there any parting th thoughts or words of wisdom that you'd like to share with Elevate Nation today? Thank you, brother. I, I really appreciate that. And um, no, I mean, if, if there's people who are just like looking to get started in this space, I, I don't know exactly um, who comprises the majority of your audience, but I would say to just get connected and, you know, reach out. Um, I'm sure you'll, you'll put my 
contact info up uh, when we're done here and people will have access. I would encourage people to reach out, even if it's just to have a conversation. But um, yeah, I, I would say to reach out. Yep. That's it. Absolutely. Yeah. We'll put a link in the show notes as where the listeners can find you at pioneercommunities.com. Of course, also on Instagram at Luke Degrassi uh, or on LinkedIn. And uh, again, you can just visit the, uh, the show notes there to find those links. But Luke, my man, until next time, thanks again for being on the show. Elevate Nation. What a gift we just received from Luca Degrassi. Luca, this is the original Italian Luke Degrassi. But uh, no, I'm so, so grateful for this opportunity to speak with Luke, uh, really just about his thinking on, you know, his investment approach, the way that they're growing their company, the way that they're creating opportunities, the way that they're solving problems, the way that they're navigating this real estate investment landscape in their asset class, in the asset class that they've chosen, in the markets that they've chosen. And it's very exciting. And it's a reminder to go back to the basics. You know, what is it that you're doing that you're overcomplicating? And uh, is your deal sourcing, are your deal sourcing sort of mechanisms not working? Well, then go back to the drawing board. Guess what? There's easy clues here. It's not easy to institute or it's not easy to execute, but it is easy when you think about sort of the simplicity there. But it does come down to a long term commitment. But also, I'll tell you, the the mindset is just really oozing uh, from everything that Luke shared with us today, his story is amazing and it's available to all of us. And guess what? If you spot it, you got it. That's what my mentor told me one time. If you see somebody doing something, you now have the opportunity of integrating that yourself, right? Let's character trait integration. What is it that you saw from Luke today that you can implement yourself, that you can create yourself, that you can institute into your own behavior, whether it's you know just the way that you are looking at deals, the way that you're uh, running your business, or the way that you have an outlook on reality. You know, do you have a little bit of a slant towards negativity? Well, then let's check in with that. And what sort of disciplined actions can we engage in on a daily basis, on a weekly basis, on a monthly basis, on a yearly basis that can create the byproduct of the mindset that's required for us to create the outcomes that we desire. And I'll tell you what, that uh, it's just amazing to have this opportunity to speak with Luke. And I want to encourage you to re-listen to the show. You're going to learn twice as much when you re-listen. Also share this episode with a friend, a colleague, a business associate, a partner, and have a discussion. What was it that you took away from this episode? What are your top one, two, or three distinctions or takeaways? I want to encourage you to jot those down. And also, most importantly, make a commitment to take action. And uh, that action may be to put something on the calendar, may be to look up something that uh, you're more curious about knowing. It may be to set up a discussion with someone else. It may be to go buy a car and drive 55,000 miles to find your next deal, right? Or to find your next 12 deals. Um, there is a lot of opportunities here that we can apply immediately. So the most important part of this episode, the most important part of your investment today is to make a commitment to, to, take, to take action. Until next time, Elevate Nation, I just wanna thank you so much for showing up, so much for investing yourself. And until next time, we will see you next time. Thank you for listening to Elevate. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to rate, review, subscribe, and pay it forward by sharing with a friend. Most importantly, take this opportunity to elevate your results by taking immediate action on what you learned. For more, visit elevatepod.com.